0: Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 778. Uh, But what do you have on the Nerdist Community Corkboard?
1: This girl named Laura McMullen is an expat living in Germany, and she is volunteering at a camp in Erding, Germany, which is housing Syrian refugees. And they get about 5,000 new refugees coming in every day, and she's writing this really interesting blog about it that's called com, And uh, she just has a bunch of info on that. She did make an Amazon wish list of things they need if you want to help out. But I I suggest people go look at it because it's really interesting.
0: Excellent. And she's got, you know, she's living an interesting life over there. Also, for the cork board, you can send to events at nerdist.com if you want us to uh, mention whatever your passion project is or your thing or your work thing or whatever. Where well, this space is for you, we want to share with you, you know, as 2015 rounds out. There's going to be a hostful podcast coming up. That's going to be up soon. And uh, so we'll talk about we'll we'll do the year wrap up. This episode is Joe Kenda. And Joe, I begged to get on. Uh, and they, and he's on a basically he's on a show on Investigation Discovery. Mm-hmm. Okay, now I discovered his show Homicide Hunter with Lieutenant Joe Kenda because it's an, it's a show that Lydia used to watch with her dad when he was still alive. Her, her dad was a private investigator, and so they watched the show together. And one day it came on. She goes, "Oh my dad and I used to watch this show," and this was maybe six months ago, four months ago, and we got hooked. Yeah, and we have watched every episode, a lot of them twice. Wow. <laughs> But basically, Joe was a homicide detective in Colorado Springs in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And it's not your typical true crime show because he narrates the show and tells the story. Mm-hmm. The reenactments are really good.
1: And he's telling like stories of things that he—, he Every episode
0: or... is a case. Oh, man. Because he has this incredibly high success rate for solving yeah. homicides, like a 92% success oh, rate. Yeah. <laughs> but it's so—he's so compelling. And he's kind of this noir character— that you couldn't write, but it's, he's so amazing and he humanized the whole process and it, he doesn't glamorize any of it. I feel like we glamorize a lot of violence and crime in our culture and he doesn't glamorize it. And it's just, he's such a real guy and the reenactments are great. There's five seasons of the show and we watch it every night. We get to bed, we put on a Kenda and I adore him and I adore the show. And also you just feel empathy for the things that this guy has seen and what he's experienced. And he also, I, you know, there's the one question, this is a little bit longer of a podcast and I probably could have talked to him for three more hours, but it's, he's such an interesting guy and he's so authentic and so honest and so open about his experiences It's just he's the kind of guest that we've never had on before in terms of, like, the the nature of his story and what he's related to. And that, you know, having a homicide detective on to talk about homicide homicide and how he processes it, just the point of view of a homicide detective. You you know, you take it for granted. How, How does a person get up every day and see the worst things that humanity has to offer and go home and have a family at night? And how do they process that? And, you know, and so getting through all that. The one question I completely didn't get to was, you know, he's took it upon himself to break the news to families. Like, how do you go really to know? a family and say this member of your family is no longer alive? They were murdered and we're investigating. Yeah. And so he's just he is such an. Endlessly fascinating human being, and um, I, I this podcast was very meaningful to me because it was meaningful to Lydia and her life. It's meaningful to our lives, and it just we have been so touched by Joe and his story and this that I just wanted to signal boost the show, let people know who Joe Kend is. Homicide Hunter um, is on Investigation Discovery Tuesday nights at nine PM. It's also on Hulu. We bought the, all five seasons on iTunes. It's out there. So yeah. Homicide was- Hunter. Joe Kenda, Investigation Discovery, Tuesdays at 9 p.m. I want to thank Investigation Discovery. Joe came out just to do the podcast. Did he really? Yes, he only came out to do the podcast. And it was such a good interview. Oh, my God. I'm so glad you liked it. He was... I was just fascinated the whole time. He's riveting. Joe is riveting. (laughs) Uh, Because he's authentic. Like, he's not... Everything he says, you're like, oh, yeah, well, that's... Yeah. He's, he's such an open book and so authentic. I, I absolutely uh, adore him. I'm going to stop gushing. I want to thank um, Joe and Investigation Discovery for having us out. And also, we would like to thank them for their sponsoring of this episode of Nerdist Podcast, which is number 778 with Joe Kenda, Lieutenant Joe Kenda. Katie, you have the right to roll the thing.
1: Now entering Nerdist.com.
0: I mean, you know, it's so funny because, I, look, I've been, I've been in television for a long time, and I meet a lot of people. Uh, but it's still so strange that you're sitting here because I'm so used to, I mean, literally every night that we get in bed, it's like, we gotta watch Homicide Hunter. I mean, five <laughs> seasons. Five yeah. seasons.
1: And they just signed for six.
0: Oh, that's so good news! Oh, that's <laughs> such good news!
1: So here we go again. Well, we it's started, such good news. We started filming the first week in February. again. Oh my god! 20
0: more. That twenty more? Yeah. Oh, Nick, this is like the best Christmas present ever. <laughs> we get twenty more homicides. <laughs> well, also, first of all, very sad that all those homicides happened. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but but people, uh,
1: people misbehave.
0: They do misbehave. Yeah. So it is. Uh, yeah, it's really great to have you here because this type of show. I feel like one of my favorite things about your show is you really humanize. I mean, it's like I feel like people are so desensitized to crime shows. We're they so are. desensitized no, to violence. No, and when I'm watching you on the show and the camera is right in your face, I can see in your eyes and through the way that you're expressing the stories that it's, you know, it's not the same kind of, you know... uh that kind of cavalier law and order, like, another dead guy. like it's, no, it's, it. you, you can see <clears throat> that, it's really, that it's real and that it's, you've sure seen the is. worst things that it, sure anyone has seen.
1: I think that that's, uh, well, the, the other side of it is I, I don't have a script. I right. say whatever I want. Yep. But when you live this work and you feel the work, I had that experience the first season I had. We had we we started filming here in, in Hollywood, and then we went to Colorado to talk to members of the family. And there was a guy and his uh, two guys, Hollywood, supposedly hard-nosed guys in their 30s. You know, <laughs> right? They've been around the block. They just sure, have been around the same blocks I've been around. But whatever, you know. Yeah. They, they thought they were badasses. Yeah. So we went back to Colorado, and there's one particular family. Who lost their daughter and never got over it. Never. Okay. Yeah. It happened this morning, even though it happened twenty years ago. Yeah. And her dad had not seen me for twenty years. When they came, I told these two guys I said when they come here, this is gonna be very emotional. Very emotional. So prepare yourselves for that. Oh yeah. Oh, sure. Right. Okay. The appointed hour comes for the interview, 10 cars pull in and 28 people get out, including the grandkids. And the father had his back to me, but I have a distinctive voice, and I said, hello, Jack. And he started to cry, before he turned around, because he recognized the voice. Yeah. And the whole family cried for two and a half hours. When they were leaving, they were all hugging me and crying because I put the guy that did that to their daughter under a prison. Mm-hmm. And uh, I look at the two badasses from Hollywood, they're crying. And that's the director. I said, hey, Jason, welcome to Homicide. Jeez. Because <laughs> that's what this is. Change those guys. Well, yeah, of Change course. Change them completely. I mean, it's uh-huh.
0: it's seeing... It's such an interesting format for a show because you're narrating, but then there's also a there's also this kind of amorphous god narration that's happening over the reenactments as well.
1: Yeah.
0: And the reenactments are really good; they're very well done. They are. I, I, I think they're well acted. They're 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 great. Uh, the guy who plays you is named Carl. Mm-hmm. Carl Marino. Yeah. He's great, and it's uh, it does not
1: romanticize
0: any no. of it the no. way that i feel like most crime shows do
1: that's true and i think that's the real failing that we've taken homicide and made it a medium of entertainment it's not what it is yeah it's
0: not what it is and does it make it is it hard for you to watch i mean like what types of, what types of shows do you watch do you, you i don't you don't watch shows no what do
1: you do with your free time i read <laughs> what i love to read what oh, i do yeah i, do. I love to read and uh, now, Kathy, my wife, my wife and I met in high school. We've been together all our lives. Oh, my God. And so she's lived through all this as well, you know. And uh, and uh, she, she had me watch uh, a cop show once. And I was working then. And she said, <clears throat> I want you to watch this. Why? Well, I want you to watch it. Okay. I'll watch it. So then she said, was well, any of that true? No. <laughs> None of it is. <laughs> what? I said, well, none of it is. Well, I don't want you to watch with me anymore. I said, okay, <laughs> I won't. <laughs> I ruined the program, apparently. You <laughs> For know, telling it's her it's like, not uh, the way it is. She asked me, to, asked me to tell her I told her. She didn't like that. But, yeah,
0: of course. The episode of your first big case in in Homicide, You, I can't remember what department you were in. What what was the what department were you in? I was be- in burglary. You were in burglary. Yeah. And you kind of you kind of shoved your way
1: into the homicide I did. department. I, I did, yeah. So that was and that's what I wanted to do. Why? I always thought that murder must be the worst crime because the worst thing can happen to you for doing it. They're gonna kill you or they're gonna lock you up forever. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to do. That's what I wanted to do. Did you Learn any, what do you
0: learn about humanity when you know that that many? I mean, just so people know, if I'm getting the
1: stats correctly,
0: it was close to 400 homicides that you saw.
1: 387. I had assigned, the numbers get bandied around a lot and the people make mistakes, but there was, I was assigned either as the detective or as the person responsible for 387 murders mm-hmm. over my career. I solved 356 of those, which is a clearance rate of 92%. The national average runs around 60, sometimes 55%. So there's 31 cases I did not resolve. I still think about them all the time. One of them just got resolved through a new DNA process, so now I'm down to 30 Mm -hmm. out of the ones that I had. I wanted to solve them all. It all depends on how you look at it. I'm a really smart guy. If I was a football team and I played 387 games and I was 356 and 31, <laughs> I'd be a dynasty. <laughs> or I'm just a dumb shit who doesn't know who killed 31 people. It depends on how you look at it. All right?
0: But you, there's something very specific about because I think someone might go, "Well, I want to go into this line of work. I want to sell – but then you start seeing firsthand what it is and what's entailed. Oh, yeah. because because it, because the two parts of the job that I see on the show a lot both sound horrific, which is you're either doing a mountain of paperwork or and you don't get days off really. It's, no. your phone rings in the middle of the night because there no murders are not on a schedule, correct. And then you're going and seeing the worst things yep.
1: that happen in, in, in humanity. So. And I would I would have done it for free, really, absolutely. My wife didn't feel that way the free <laughs> part, you know. But uh, no, I absolutely I loved it. I didn't like it. I loved it. I saw it as a mission. You know, if somebody does something absolutely horrible to someone else, you have two options. You can stand up or you can remain seated i stood up and so you and i was proud of that and it was for the victims for the victims and the families no one else can speak for them except you they can't anymore you're the only defense they have for them losing their life why would you not want to do that what did you learn about
0: when you said People committing the worst acts knowing that they'll essentially – it comes with the worst penalties. What did you learn about people? Why? I mean, is, you know, obviously a lot of the time it feels like it's, it's just an in-the-moment sort of a thing. But a lot sure. of times
1: it's very premeditated. It, uh, at times it is calculating. That is not common. Calculation is not common. But it does happen. In the case of calculation, the, per- the perpetrator believes that he's a genius. The police will never figure this out because after all, it's my plan and I'm the smartest guy in this galaxy. Mm -hmm. So, I'm going to do this and I'm going to get away with it. No, you're not. I had a girl once who murdered her boyfriend's wife in a plot that they put together over a period of eight months. The plan was to get insurance money that they were going to live happily ever after with and she was going to leave her husband and he would now no longer have a wife because they were going to kill her. Mm -hmm. And then they were going to live on this money. And I unraveled this case in two days. Their plan was to make it appear as if it was a street robbery involving a male perpetrator wearing military clothing and a ski mask. I saw this episode. Okay. Okay. So when I'm interviewing her, and she's confessing to this offense, so what did he say to you? Well, he told me the police are stupid, and they'll never figure this out, and they'll look for an armed robber that doesn't exist. And this goes on for a couple of hours. And finally, when it's all through, I say, okay, well, you're under arrest for first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. And I only have one last question. What? Do you think the police are stupid? She didn't answer me. Uh, She's still locked up, of course, and so is he. But those kinds of offenses are not common. The way you solve that, though, I remember the way – I
0: remember the detail of the case that cracked that case. And it was genius – which was when they described it was outside a community center, I think. Mm-hmm. It was, and you got they, a good memory. I do. I'm telling you, you I'm can not make a policeman. Out I of was you. not. Pardon the expression, <laughs> fucking around when I said we've seen every episode and some a couple times. So they come out into the parking lot, <clears> uh, <throat> random, quote unquote, random street crime. The mass, sure. the military, and one detail about the case caught your attention after after like a day, I think, which is. The perpetrator took the purse and put it over the shoulder and you said... Over his arm. Over the arm, you said, which is like a woman would do, not just like grabbed and ran away with a hand. Correct. And that, that led you to
1: look at this... To uh, think about it another way. And when I talked to the witness who... You know, it's interesting. When you approach a witness, you have to be careful how you question a witness. You can't plant facts in her head. You can't ask a witness, how tall was he? People don't know that. They don't know. So you say, instead of that, you say, Was he bigger than you or was he smaller than you? That they know. Yeah. Right? So she said, Well, he is smaller than me. How tall are you? Well, I'm five foot eight. And this guy was smaller than you? Oh, yeah. When he ran away, how did he run? Well, what do you mean? Well, did he run like an athlete? Or did he run like he knew how to run? Did he run... Uh, uh, how did he run? Well, he ran kind of funny, you know, like his shoes were too big. Huh? Like maybe he ran like a girl. <laughs> she said, yeah, yeah, he ran like a girl. Thank you. Wow. You know what I mean? It all depends on, you know... You've got to keep an open mind. You can't... The greatest mistake that gets made in investigations is people make up their minds what happened before they get there. They develop a theory of the case on the way to the crime scene. and And you beat up the facts to match your theory. That's the wrong thing. You have to let the facts drive the theory. You have no idea what happened. You have no idea what happened. You know that somebody's dead and somebody died violently. Why did they do that? I don't know. I would teach a a class in police academy and I would put up a slide of a 37 year old white female, multiple gunshot wounds of the chest on a city street at a slight down angle. So she gravity bleeds. So there's this river of blood Mm -hmm. from this woman. These are kids, boys and girls, just starting out in the police business. A lot of them never seen a dead body, let alone a violent death. And take a breath, you put up the slide. You know. So, what do we think? Multiple gunshot wounds to the chest. Now, did she die because her husband of 19 years was sick and tired of her buttering the toast on the wrong side? Or did she die because all blondes are she-devils from hell and they need to be eliminated? could be either one. Right. Or anything in between. I don't know why she's like that. That's why we're here, to find out
0: <laughs> why. You know? How long did it... Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't imagine that you ever get used to seeing any of it. But how long was it into the job before
1: you were able to mash down your normal human reaction? Of to- course. Are there, it's interesting you ask that question, because I did a podcast recently on iTunes titled Detective. And there was 10 episodes. And one of the things I talked about on one of them was the first dead body I ever saw. I was a, I'd been a policeman all day. <laughs> I was in uniform. you know. I was driving a police car. My leather still squeaked. you know. I thought I had arrived, that I was going to put my nose to the grindstone. I was going to do whatever I had to do. And I was eventually going to get into homicide. I know you got to spend time in the street, so I'm here to spend time in the street, and then I'm going to work toward this other goal. So we get a call of a Hispanic female, 22 years old, gunshot wound to the head, been dead four or five days, in an apartment in the summer. Oh. So I go there. There's other policemen there. And I am, my heart's in my throat, and my... Pulse is going like a trip hammer, and I'm thinking, what am I going to see? What am I going to see? And you walk in, and here's a girl whose face is distorted by gunshot damage. who has blood that is now black because it's been there for several days in the heat. There are flies all over her, all throughout the apartment. The odor is overwhelming, the odor of death. And I, I'm almost sick and almost unable to breathe. And the older cops are laughing at me. What's the matter, Kenda? Smell something bad. And everybody laughs. And I thought, you bastards. How could you, how could you think like that? How could you do this? And I walked out back outside. And I couldn't see where I was going. I, couldn't, I still couldn't breathe. I went home that night, I couldn't sleep. All I could see was her. I couldn't eat. I got back in that police car the next day and I could still smell her in that car. Now, of course I couldn't, Right. but I thought I could. And I'm sitting there thinking, maybe Kenda, you need to rethink your entire plan about getting into the murder business. This is so horrible. And you look at the microphone and you're supposed to say, when you get in the car, that you're in service, meaning you're available for calls. And my heart's in my throat, and my pulse is going at 150 beats a second, and uh, I'm looking at that microphone, I'm not picking it up. And I said, okay, this, this is the moment. You know, did you do the right thing here? Yeah, you did. You fall off a horse, you get back on. I picked up that microphone, and I said, Fordham 21's in service. Roger Fordham 21, man with a gun, shots being fired. know, yeah. Here we go. Mm-hmm. Fast forward eight or nine years. I'm a sergeant in homicide. Young girl goes to work. She has a, her first foray into employment. She's got a job in a mall and she sells shoes. She's sixteen years old, goes to high school, goes on Saturdays, and she sells shoes Saturday morning. Mall's supposed to open at ten o'clock. She's supposed to be there at ten for opening business. She goes there, all the stores are open, except this one she works in. mail's down, lights are out. What's going on? She goes in the service corridor, there's a back door of course. She has a key, she opens the back door the 34-year-old manager is face down on the floor in a literal river of blood. There's blood, 8 feet across, 10 feet long, inch deep, face down. She, for reeks, calls everybody and their brother. Patrol shows up, they call homicide. I show up. I'm looking at this guy. There's a unique thing about humans when they die standing erect. If you are standing erect and you were shot with a surface to air missile or run through with a sword or whatever, and you instantly die standing on your feet, and you fall dead, you're dead before you hit the ground. It's something called a dead man's fall. One foot will cross the other. Could be right over left, left over right, but one foot will cross over. So look at this guy laying on this floor and his feet are crossed. Hmm. Malls are built, but a slight down angle to the floor. In the event the sprinkler system goes off, the water drains out of the building. It's a very slight angle, but it's there. You mm-hmm. can't really see it, but it's there. So when he falls dead on this concrete floor, he is 6'4", 230 pounds. He's a big guy. He breaks his face when he hits the floor. The orbits, the jaw, the mouth, the teeth, everything. But he's dead. He doesn't feel it. But he breaks his face. So now he gravity bleeds. He's probably been there all night, and all the blood in his body, six to eight pints depending upon the person, is now on this floor making it look like he's been attacked by Jack the Ripper. And I told one of my guys, I said, when we move him, we're going to find a needle in his arm. Because I went over to his desk and there was a, there was a, in the, on the street it's called a bindle, a pharmaceutical fold piece of paper or it, that contains illegal narcotics. And it's folded over many times to prevent loss of the product. There was a spoon with a blackened bottom on it and a Bic lighter and, This guy is melting cocaine, and he's injecting it IV. Jesus. Because snorting it isn't working anymore. So now we're going to do this, okay? That kills you in a microsecond, okay? Shuts you off like a switch. He stood up in that office and shoved that needle in his arm and croaked and then fell and broke his face. I said, we turn him over. We're going to find a needle in his arm. He didn't have time to pull it out. Roll him over. There's a needle in his arm. It is accidental death, drug involved. We had to add that to causes of death. In the 80s, this country has an insatiable desire to consume narcotics. They don't buy them from a pharmaceutical company. They buy them from some idiot on a street corner that might have cut it with rat poison or talcum powder or sugar or God knows what. Right, And you're going to stick that in your arm. Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> right. So this guy does this. We had homicide, suicide, natural, and accidental. Those were the four causes of death in, the, in this country. In the middle 80s, it became murder. Suicide, natural, accidental, and accidental drug involved. There's no intent to die. You make a mistake. You ingest the wrong product. Mm -hmm. You put it in the wrong location, and it kills you. At that moment, those years later, my heart was not in my throat. My pulse was not hammering. I was professional, clinical, almost a doctor. There's this examination of what we refer to in the trade as the HR, the human remit. What killed this guy? He did. Injecting drugs through a needle.
0: Do you ever still... Because it feels like I feel like you've alluded To the fact on the show That it's very difficult For you to sleep Mm -hmm. Is that because of Being used to the phone Ringing in the middle of the night Or is it just because of No
1: I have Nightmares Nightmares Sure My dead people Come back and visit You know there's a There's a movie You know With uh, Bruce Willis Sixth Sense Sixth Sense Where he uh, Little kid says I see dead people Yeah Well that was a movie I really do see dead people Oh man So my wife, who uh, she's trained as a psychiatric nurse. And uh, after I retired, and I was not doing well, when you're doing it, you're too busy to think about it. You're just too busy. You haven't really processed it yet, right? No, you haven't. But after you retire, then it's like, Mm hmm. So she looks at me and says, you need professional help. You need to see somebody for PTSD because you have it big time. Yeah. You know. So I identify this guy who is a psychiatrist who's supposed to be the dude for PTSD in the state of Colorado. He's in Denver. Now the health coverage I had doesn't pay for mental health issues. Very few do. Oh my god. How long are you going to be crazy? You know, oh my your leg's god. going to be broken for eight weeks. I mean that we know that. So we'll pay for the broken leg. But what about nuts well I don't know about
0: that you right.
1: know? so no no help alright so ok whatever so I go see this guy 400 bucks to talk to this guy for an hour I'm a policeman a retired policeman that's a lot of money yeah. 400 dollars so I paid him 400 bucks nice guy walk in sit down do you have recurring dreams I do can you tell me about him? of course how many do you have I said 5 well could you recount them to me Okay. So I do that for like 20 minutes. He starts crying. I am comforting him because he is so distressed about these dreams. I'm thinking two things. Who do I speak to about my 400 <laughs> goddamn dollars? Right? Who is it that I talk to about that? And what's wrong with this picture? That's the other thing I'm thinking. Right? Yeah. So I leave. I walk in a house. Kathy says, well, how was it? Don't you ever ask me to do that again. She goes, oh, my God. What, what, what happened? I told her. So geez. So about two months later, I was on a golf course. I play golf badly, but I play golf. So I'm on this golf course playing golf. And, and the chief of police is there, who was used to be an LAPD homicide before he became our chief. He's quite a guy. And uh, everybody in the PD called me Joey. That was my nickname. Joey the K, because my last name's Kendra. So everybody called me Joey the K. So he says, hey, Joey, how you doing? I'm good. You sleeping, Joey? I said, no, I'm not. And he said, you know all that shit, Joey? It never goes away. And that was an epiphany for me. He's right. It never goes away. You learn how to deal with it. You
0: learn how to deal with it. I mean, it's amazing because I can even, because what people can't see from listening to an audio podcast is that when you're describing it, you're smiling about it almost as if you
1: have made peace with this. Weird... I have. Oh yeah. I have. His advice was free. The other guy cost me 400 bucks. And you know? had to counsel him. And I you had to have counsel the bill. I should, you should have done. Yeah, I should him have a bill
0: for $450. Yeah. I
1: got the money back. Oh, oh good. I, I did. I said, <laughs> yeah. He said that or malpractice, what do you want to do? And, yeah. Uh, give him the money. Yeah, you know, okay, fine, thank you. Sure, obviously, obviously was pathetic. You know, but, uh, but yeah, that worked. That worked. And uh, uh, this show has helped me. It's kind of therapeutic in a way. Oh, I, I would mean, imagine. Uh, you re- I've told some of the things I've said on, the, on that c- to, to that camera I've never told anybody before. A couple times, not not all the time, but a couple times, my wife will watch the show with me. I'll watch it to make sure I'm not wearing a paper hat and riding a unicycle, you know what I mean? But right. she watches it just to watch it. And a couple times, she's looking at me instead of the TV. I said, what are you looking at? She said, I, I never knew you did that. Uh, no, you didn't. <laughs> I never told you. Yeah. You kept it from her on purpose. To, of course. Yeah. What are you going to do when you go home at work? Yeah, I mean, I would do that sometimes. I'd go home, and she'd, and we had two kids, right? She'd say, well, how was today? No, oh, it was all right. Yeah. What happened? Nothing. Nothing happened. It was quiet. Yeah, it was quiet. I not let it go at that, right? Then she'd turn the news on. I'd be on the news, talking to the press talking to 14 members of the press, you know, on a crime scene tape, everything. What about that? <laughs> well, yeah, there was that. <laughs> Didn't want to tell you about it. <clears throat> And then the fight had be on, you know. So, yeah, it's it's very difficult to... You want to protect her, and she doesn't want to be protected. She wants to know what you've done or what you're dealing with or whatever, you know, and uh, there were a couple of times when she was threatened by people that I had dealt with, and I have got threatened a hundred times a week. I'm still here, you know, but... Uh, on one occasion, somebody called the house, got the phone number, told her what color the carpet in the room was. Oh, you know, sure. not good! You know, and I had to send her out of town. Well, I found him. I found him, but it took a while. But uh, and that really spooked her, big time. Spooked her. Well, yeah, because
0: you're yeah. you're 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 reaching into the drug community, basically. Sure, you're, you're and my work
1: or- leaked into her work because she worked at a city hospital. And a lot of my clients were in there, you know, had been shot or run over or whatever. And, uh, and uh, it, there was one occasion where I had a guy, uh, very ugly case. And uh, I had been home for three days. She didn't, and this is before the days of cell phones. and She didn't know what I was doing. She knew it wasn't good, whatever it was, but she didn't know what I was doing. So i have been gone for three days. She goes to work in the morning. And she is the charge, she's a float nurse. So everybody called her Franny Float. You know, she worked wherever they needed somebody. She's very skillful. And so she could go to uh, ICU, she could go to ER, she could go anywhere in the hospital. If somebody called off sick or wasn't available, they needed help or whatever, they'd use her. So she's a charge nurse on this particular floor. And there was a guy, there was a, I think it was an orderly or something. But he'd worked at a hospital a long time, and she'd seen him and worked with him a couple times. And she knew his name was Michael. That's all she knew. She didn't know his last name. Not that it would have mattered, but she didn't know his last name. So she comes into work, bebops in the door early in the morning, quarter to seven, and here's Michael standing there. Oh, hi, Michael. He gets a one inch from her nose, and he says, Your husband killed my brother last night. And Kathy's pretty sharp, you know, and her, she thinks on her feet. She said, well, I don't know what happened between your brother and my husband, but I know that you and I have worked together for years, and there's never been a problem between you and I. Does this mean there's going to be a problem now? And he looked at her for a couple of minutes, and he, no. Then he walked away. And she was like, holy shit. Well... It, his brother was dead. I didn't kill him. I mean, technically, I didn't. I mean, he killed himself. The uh, he had murdered five people in a armed robbery of two businesses and set one of the businesses on fire. Jesus, it's an ugly thing. I track him. It takes 52 hours to find him, and I find him. And I got his apartment surrounded by the SWAT team and we quietly remove everybody from around the apartment and so on, and uh, we call him on the phone. You know, I'd rather him come out than us have to go in. And a girl answered the phone. We didn't think he had a girl. We had no information. He had a girlfriend. He didn't have a wife. And to our information was he lived alone in this apartment. But it turned out later we discovered this was an old girlfriend that stopped by and spent the night, oh. out of the blue, you know. And but this guy was a plumber, so he often got calls at night. So she, had, this girl's voice answered the phone. You think I've got the wrong number? <laughs> uh, is Gilbert there? Oh, just a minute. Because <laughs> she didn't think it was unusual that the phone would ring. It's two o'clock in the morning, but. He's a plumber. He's on a 24-hour call, right? So he gets in the phone. I said, hey, uh, I told him who we were. We have warrants for you, five counts, first-degree murder. I don't want to hurt you, Gilbert. And I don't want to hurt that girl. But it will hurt you. I need you to come out of that apartment. There's no way out. We have it surrounded. Come out. And he put the phone down. And he said something to the girl. I couldn't tell what it was. And you hear her screaming, the police? What do you mean the police are here? She has no idea what had done. Why are the police here, you know? And he picked up the phone again. I heard him pick it up, and he's breathing into the phone, panting almost. You there, Gilbert? Nothing, you know. You didn't understand what I said to you, didn't you? And he shot himself over the phone.
0: Oh my God!
1: And a, a, a microphone and a phone won't pick up the sound of a gunshot. It's a flat noise because it won't peak to the actual noise because it's a cheap little microphone. You know, so it sound like somebody whacking a two by four on concrete. It's a flat sound, not a gunshot, but yeah. but really loud. You know, so SWAT hits it right at right at that moment because we don't know if he shot her, we shot himself, we don't know. So when they kick it and they blast in there with the MP5s with the laser sights and everything, here's this girl sitting with her hands in the air, and she's covered in blood. It's not her blood; it's Gilbert's blood. And she's wearing a pair of panties, and she's screaming like a Comanche Indian. I mean, this has not been a good way to wake up, right? And Gilbert had shot himself with a 357 Magnum, so his skull cap is in a bathtub, and the rest of him's in the chair. Jesus. And uh, you know, so he saved the taxpayers a lot of money. Good for him. You know, but uh, So I didn't kill him. He shot himself. But Michael believed I was responsible.
0: Is there a common thread with people? I mean, do they ultimately take responsibility emotionally for
1: what they did? Or do you feel like they... No, there are people that do. It is There are people that do. Uh, there are people who are overcome by a moment of emotion and react violently against someone and then are mortified by their behavior, they are truly sorry, but society won't accept your apology. Okay? They won't. But they truly are sorry. And if you recognize that in someone you're interrogating, a technique to get him to tell you, him or her, to tell you the facts of the case if you detect sincere remorse in their demeanor, in what they say, and how they're looking at you, how they care of themselves, put your hands on them. Humans want to be forgiven. Everybody does. And they'll take forgiveness even from you. You put your hands on them and touch them. Like on so the they feel it on the shoulder, on the yeah. bicep, whatever. And you say, you know, I know you didn't mean it. No, I didn't mean it. Tell me the rest. And at that point, it's already the floodgates sure. are open. Yes. They've gotten their forgiveness, in a manner of speaking, from me. I know you didn't mean it. What about the ones who are just completely emotionally separated from the act. Those people are also rare, people who are completely separated. Now, if you're a criminal, you understand there is punishment coming, so you want a lawyer. It's not that you're emotionally detached. You're cunning. You're not real intelligent, but you're cunning. Mm -hmm. You you understand that there is punishment here. No, I won't need that. But the occasional, very rarely, do you encounter someone who is truly a sociopath. Someone who really, truly doesn't care. And those people are really spooky to talk to. Because there's nothing. Zip. The only emotion that person is capable of is rage. He doesn't feel love, compassion, guilt, none of that. Doesn't feel it. Make him mad, he feels that. He feels that, rage. A common thing with those guys, this happened to me once when I had a classic example, he's on death row at the moment in Colorado. He is sitting there, I'm gonna interrogate him in a murder case. He's already under arrest for multiple murders in another jurisdiction. I had him driven to my building as I think he's my guy in my murder case. So I, they put him in a room. He's cuffed, and he's in, he's in a county jail outfit, you know. He knows he's been driven for like an hour and a half to another police department to talk to yet another policeman about yet another murder, you know. Now, if you would think you'd be pretty jazzed up if you were the guy who was going to be sitting in that room, but not if you're him. So when I walk in there, he's asleep
0: I know this, I know this case too.
1: Yeah, it's Ronald Lee White. Yeah. He's asleep on his arm.
0: He just randomly like killed a guy at a bar, yes. out, of, out of the bar.: Yes. I, compl- I, I told gave him a her- ride home.: Yeah, then he killed him. Then he killed him, of course, and he had killed other people, and you said and I remember, oh, yeah. I remember the episode cause it, and you seemed genuinely kind of spooked by the guy because he didn't really have no, any He's a very different guy. He's a very
1: different guy. But that's rare. Very, very, thank God. But very rare. I was also... He weird. is also, interestingly enough, his his death sentence was commuted by one of the governors who left office in a moment of largesse. They do that. you know. I now forgive everyone who ever got convicted. You know, yeah. Whatever. You know? yeah. So they inform him that he's no longer on death row. And that he's going to do life in jail and he'll never get out. But he's never... He, we're, we're not going to kill you. He is suing... The state of Colorado demanding to be executed. Oh my God. He doesn't like jail. Is he gonna do you think he's gonna win? No. But that's what he's doing. Oh my god. I think it's also Oh no, we showed you mercy. I don't <laughs> want mercy, I wanna
0: be dead. Just fucking kill me. Yeah. But it's <laughs> it's also interesting that um I think when the when, when the average person thinks about, oh, the world is a dangerous place and you could get shot when you run out, when you really well, look at, when I see, like when you watch, when I watch five seasons of your show, it feels like random murders are very rare.
1: They are. They absolutely are. You There's are, usually an intention. Of course. And you are at risk from someone you know more than you are from the world at large. People are driven in many ways by the media. The media... Beats the drum of violence. Violent crime in the United States has gone down every year for 20 years. Gone down. Now, the press doesn't like that because you lose a lot of audience when no one watches the news. So, what happens in the modern day? And now the news brought to you by Chicken Little. Mm hmm. You know. People all over the world are dead, people in North America are dead, people in your state are dead, people in your city are dead, people in your neighborhood are dead, and we'll be back after these matches unless you're dead. Yeah, because right? they know that people aren't gonna watch the news if they go, hey, every, you know, there's some bad stuff, but there's some good stuff.
0: It's not that bad, you know. No, no, no. No,
1: no it's, it's bad. It's watch bad, this it's or bad. you so find out how you won't yeah, die. Yes, of course. We have a new threat today. You know, we have a new threat by we probably have another new threat at eleven. Yeah. So we have one now, too. But remember
0: mm. we brought you the threat first. Yes. <laughs> Action yes. news. Yeah, of
1: course. We're in it. We're in a, we're, We love this. You know. Yeah, okay. Whatever. So you have people driven by that. They develop unreasonable fear, and people say, you know, this is, it, the world's a terrible place. The world has always been, to some degree, a dangerous place. Of course, it is. It would be nice if the world was a perfect place. It isn't. It just isn't, and it never will be. But there are certainly steps you can take to avoid being a victim of a violent offense. They're simple. Stay at a bar as a closing time. Mm-hmm. Nothing good happens after midnight. Okay. <laughs> do not buy, sell, or use narcotics or associate with those who do and try to marry well. Don't marry a psychotic. <laughs> and your odds of being a, a victim of violent crime are an inch high. <laughs> do those other things or do them in combination and they're six feet high. It goes up in a... What years
0: were you... First of all, I was surprised. It, 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 I, when Lydia and I were, started watching the show, were like, I had no idea Colorado Springs was a hotbed.
1: Of- it's not. It's not. It is an average crime rate. Consider the fact that these are cases occurred over decades of my career. What year did you... When did you start? I started in 1973. And you retired? 98. I 98. Yeah, 96, but I was, okay, so whatever. 23, 26 years. Exactly. Somewhere around there. 21 in homicide. So if you take that number of murders and you divide it by 21, and it works out to like 20 a year, yeah, which is average for the population. The, the murder rate in Colorado Springs is no worse than it is anywhere else. Mm-hmm. It's no better, but it's no worse. Right. It's right where it should be for the number of humans in a particular place. When you have humans in a place, there's going to be some trouble. That's okay? the, the way things are. The more humans, the more trouble. It's a simple case of numbers. Now, the murder rate is kind of like the economy. It goes up and down. Mm-hmm. So you have good sometimes years, with bad the economy. Years. Yeah, sometimes with the economy. You have good years, bad years. When you have one year you have seventeen, the next year you have twenty nine. Uh-huh. You know? But it works out to where it's an average 20, 21 a year is about what you would expect to have in a city of that population. So if you know, if you watch the show, of course, that's what it is, but it's over a period of a long period of time. Twenty one years of homicide. You know, that's a lot of years. And you're also, when you watch the show, it's funny, even working in television,
0: sometimes I forget when I'm watching a show, oh, it isn't necessarily, you know, you're probably working on a few cases at one time.
1: Of course. So, but in the show, it's very linear with each yeah, case. Yeah, it has to be, because, because otherwise the audience gets very confused.
0: So you. on average, if, you know, what, what, did your, what did your stats average out to in terms of you get the call, you go investigate the crime... Typically,
1: how long does it... I know it's difficult to say because they're... It is very difficult to say. I, I, my was always of the impression that speed kills. Okay, so let's, let's, let's move. Uh, you know, we, we, we work. Yeah. We don't go home. We don't go eat. We don't go to sleep. We don't go anywhere. If there's things to do, let's do things. I would tell my guys and girls the same thing all the time. i say, okay, we have discovered a homicide. Whoever did this has a head start. He's got a head start. He or she is very busy right now. They are distancing themselves emotionally from the event. They're concealing evidence. They are establishing an alibi. They're destroying evidence. They might even be fleeing the jurisdiction. Now, what are we doing? So now with our thumb in our ear, yeah, let's start doing something. This is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Let's go to work. And we will work 24, 48 hours, whatever it is, until we run out of things to do. Very often you can turn a case quickly. Sometimes you cannot. My record is nine years. Nine years to turn a rest. And it was like, it drove me crazy. It drove me crazy. I had a guy, and we did an episode on this, his name is Eric Stanley Houston. Eric Stanley Houston was a pathetic guy, uh, uh, the kind of guy that nobody cared about. He was hit with a car when he was eight years old, and it scrambled his brain. He never got older than eight, emotionally. But physically, he was okay. He was unable to assess people who were truly his friends and who were just taking advantage of him. His parents were older when he was born. He was like an oops kid. Right? Yeah. So his parents died. There's no family to pick up after him. So eventually he gets scooped up by some sort of community program. And they put him in Goodwill Industries. And he has a job. And he lives in a terrible place because it's what he can afford. And half the criminals on the west side lived in the same place. So they would blame Eric for every criminal thing they did. They would name him as a suspect to the police. He got arrested a lot, but he never got convicted of anything. He never did anything. They would drink his whiskey, spend his money, and basically take advantage of it. And he was 34 years old. He gets stabbed 31 times in his room, and somebody steals a $40 radio from him. A vicious attack. And nobody cared. The press didn't care. Nobody cared. Some goodwill guy, you know. But I cared. And I worked that case and I worked it and I worked it. And I got a new guy into homicide years later. Brand new kid. And I said, hey, I want you to work this lead in the Houston case. Well, that's not guy in the motel from the west side from years ago I said yeah yeah it is well nobody cares about him and everybody else that heard him say that goes
0: wrong thing to say
1: and they started drifting you know and I turned as white as your shirt and I turned I looked at him don't you ever ever say that to me don't ever say that if you ever say that again or if I ever think you think that again I'm going to have you at the airport running tickets from midnight date with Tuesdays and Thursdays off. Am I clear on that? Yes, sir. I said, now go work that lead. Yes, sir. Okay. Nine years go by, we turned it. First DNA case in Colorado, that case. DNA was new stuff then. Well, is that,
0: how else would your work be different now? If you were starting now, how else would your work
1: be different? There are better, better forensic techniques available today. Uh, DNA has advanced dramatically from what it was be- to begin with. Advanced enormously compared to what it was then. Okay, uh, There would be some helpful things that would come out of it. But ultimately, murders are resolved through conversation. People kill people. They do so for a reason. It may be a completely insane reason, but it's a reason. Find the reason, find the guy. Okay? Now, forensics plays a role. It does. But it's not magic. It isn't magic. It never has been magic. They all claim it's magic, some of the forensic people, not all of them forensic people, but some of them do, that, you know, we will tell you, you know, I had a, a laboratory, a private lab years ago. I had a sample of a product, I do not know what it was, that we found on the victim's body. No one else knew what it was. The coroner looked at it, he said, I don't, I don't know what that is. It could be a food product, I don't know nobody seemed to know the lab said we don't know we're afraid if we try to test it we'll destroy the sample so there's a specialized lab in Chicago that for 10,000 American dollars will be happy to tell you what this is right, you know so I sent it to them and oh they're, they're oh by god you know so three or four days go by and I call them back so what's up well, the moon wasn't in the right phase, and the stars weren't in alignment, and we didn't get a result. And you don't get ten grand either. I pay for success, <laughs> you know. And that was the end of that. So some people talk a better game than they play, and, but there are useful things that can be gained from forensic science. Not everything is as useful as you might think it would be. For example, I find your fingerprints in the murder scene. Your prints they are on the desk. The victim is dead on the floor behind the desk. Your prints are on the desk. By God, go arrest that guy Hardwick. His prints are <laughs> on that desk, the murdering son of a bitch. It wasn't me. I was- and that's what you say when yeah. you get there and you say you, you, know, you might be right because then we discover that you had been in that place two weeks earlier, talking to that person on the other side of that desk. There is no way to determine the age of a fingerprint. Right. Okay? If you recovered a letter written by Napoleon to Josephine and fumed it and got Napoleon's fingerprint and you rolled one right next to it and fumed it, they'd look identical. Except one that's been there for 140 years. And one's been there for a minute. Yeah. Amino acid is amino acid. That's what's in fingerprints. You know, so the fact that they are there doesn't necessarily mean anything. They have to be there at the time the crime was committed. Okay. And that's be, then it becomes meaningful, but it's still circumstantial evidence. Sure. That's all it is. You still have to tell a convincing story. You have to, you know, going to court. Remember years and years and years ago, they, they sold numbered paintings for kids. It was a canvas that had little blocks yeah, with numbers. Yeah. In it. You take yeah. the numbered paints and you put it in the number, and pretty soon you have a painting. Mm-hmm. Everybody, therefore, becomes an artist, right? Okay, whatever. In front of a jury, you show them this canvas with numbers. And you explain to that jury, not in these words, but you explain to the jury, when I'm done, I'm going to paint a picture of how this crime occurred and who's responsible. And when I get through with this picture, it's going to be a picture of him. That guy sitting at the defendant's table. It won't be a picture of anybody else. It won't be a picture of somebody that looks like him. It'll be him. That's the point. So when I would take a case to court, I had two hundred and seventeen trials for first degree murder. I lost two. I shouldn't have lost them, but I did. So I was two hundred and fifteen and two. Jesus. The same football analogy. A football team, two hundred and fifteen and two, or a dumb shit who can't convict two people of murder. Depends <laughs> on how you look at it. All right? Was one of them the guy who, who uh, went out of a office? Of but yes, and I have an alibi. I want you to know I have an alibi for that. So you know, I didn't push him out of the window.
0: <laughs> no, but uh, in the, I remember the episode. You it was. You seemed so satisfied when you said, like a month later, he fell out of a window, and you go, "It turns out he don't bounce too good." No,
1: he didn't. Uh, <laughs> NYPD back in these back in the day, NYPD took a Polaroid picture of him with his head broken head on the sidewalk. You know, and they sent it to me. And uh, there was a a writer for the show or somebody in the room when I did this. Because when I do that, I just talk. Yeah. Like we're doing right here. Yeah. And then they edit to fit into what they're going to do. But it's just me, right? So I had that picture. And I kept it in my desk for seven years. And I was having a bad day. I'd pull that picture out and I would look at dead Jimmy and I would feel better. Wow. And that guy didn't like that. He got up and left the room. I thought, what's the matter with him? You know, whatever. But yeah, that guy had it coming. Okay. So was this guy that got up
0: and left the room was like, how can you yeah, celebrate? Course. Yeah. So how do you answer that question? I don't. <laughs> you don't have to, I guess. I don't
1: have to. Yeah, I don't have to answer that question. You know, people ask me, how do you feel about punishments? Well, I'm not in the punishment business. I'm in the arrest business. I bring people into a courtroom. And you're on the jury. Twelve people sitting there, you know. And I've got this guy. Here he is. Let me tell you what he did. Okay? We'll start with that. Let me tell you what he did. What happened. Here's what happened. Let me tell you how I know that he did that. And then we can do that. Now, what do you think you ought to do about it? Something of you to consider. Want to give him a silver star? Want to shoot him? What do you think? Now, while you're considering that question, stay here, because I'm going to go get another one. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll be back. And we'll go through this exercise again. But I'm not in the punishment business.
0: Were you ever worried? I
1: mean, you were always sure every time you had the right guy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if ever I wasn't, I wouldn't arrest him. So you really had to. I find that one
0: of the difficult things is to learn to listen to your gut because how do you know sometimes your gut can be clouded by emotion it can be clouded by doubt it can be clouded by it can so how do you push that
1: out of the way and know because you maintain your professional approach you don't get emotional you don't get emotional you can't afford emotion emotion is too expensive you can't get upset you can't get irate you can't get the syndrome that if I ever go to sleep the bad guys are going to take over the world oh no 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 you know this is a profession. Treat it like one. What do we know about this guy? Well, we know this. Okay, well, that's not good for him. That's not good. It's not meaningful, particularly, but it has some meaning. What else do we know? Well, we know this. Okay, so we had that on this block, on top of that block. And then we, now we know this. Okay, so now we got these things. And this. And this. No, no. Now it is meaningful. Let's talk to him. Hi. I almost always got a statement out of people. Sometimes I didn't. But almost always I did. Confession to the crime. That's what I wanted. Tell me. Tell me what you did. I already know what you did. We think I am a moron? I didn't figure you out? Tell me. So, th- that interrogation techniques are something you learn over time. They're different for everyone. You have to find something that you're comfortable with, that you're okay with, that you can do differently than everybody else, you know, uh, that works for you. Your technique is what works for you. I never raise my voice to people. I never used profanity. I was always very nice. But I would get to the bottom of what was going on, which was the point. And I would disarm people if I could. I would distract them. An example, I have a guy who's handcuffed. He's uh, naked to the waist. He's got prison tattoos all over him. He is an asshole. He is covered in sweat. He is pissed. He's so mad he's shaking, sitting in an interrogation room and waiting to unload in the first copy he sees or anybody that walks through the door. So I walk in the door, and I threw a notebook on the desk, and I sat down on the floor, and I put my arms out behind me, and I started working, rolling my shoulders. I didn't say anything to him. And now he's not mad. Now he's looking at me like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> he's, looking, he's got his cuffs behind him. He's, he's he just got this quizzical look on his face, but he's not screaming, and he's not yelling profanities. He's just like, what are you doing? And I looked at him and I said, "You ever have trouble with your back? God, my back's killing me." You know. And you know what he said? <laughs> well, yeah, I've had trouble with my back. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So you're disrupting his. I'm disrupting state, his, his focus. plan. Yeah. His focus is to scream and yell. That's that same thing that happens. Or you say to someone who is, you know, the, the people's greatest line of defense is an offense. I mean, it's where fear drives anger. It does. You're angry and yelling at somebody because you're afraid. That's your defense mm-hmm. from the fear. Okay? So you expect to be yelled at in interrogation rooms. You do. So you have to take that away from them so that they're, you lessen the fear and you drop the screaming. Oh, I never... That, okay? That, that lessen the fear, drop the screaming. Okay. That's fascinating. So if, if you say to the guy, <clears throat> you know, I, I, it's... I don't even understand why you're here. It's probably some misunderstanding. Perhaps I can help you if you just tell me what happened. Emphasis on the word. Perhaps, of Mm -hmm. course. Right. (laughs) Right. And they tell you their story. Okay. Whatever it is. They pour it out because they think, hey, hey, maybe I can get past this guy. Because he's nice. Nobody. Cops aren't Nice. You know, maybe this one's dumb. Yeah, maybe I am. Talk to me. You know, so they tell you there's this incredible story. And of course, they're lying their ass off. Of course they are. You don't write it down. You don't take notes. There's no recording in the room. But I remember every word, every word you say to me. Wait a couple hours. Friendly, you know. Now we're in a bar. We're not in a police station anymore. We're just having a conversation, you know. And we're yapping. And I say, you know, for me to help you, I really have to present your story to to other people, my boss. And I'm having trouble remembering some of the things you said. Could you tell me again? of course, they can't tell you again because they invented the first story. (laughs) So they try they really try, but there's always changes. Something subtle is different. And that's what you're looking for. You're looking for that first lie. Now you want to change from Mr. Nice Guy to the Antichrist. <laughs> now it's like, hey, well, my, my, my. An hour ago you said this. and Now you say this. Were you lying then? Are you lying now or are you just a fucking liar? (laughs) And you see the whole, the face change, you know, like, what happened to my friend? (laughs) Where's my friend? Now you're throwing him off balance. The same thing. The same thing. You keep somebody off balance. He's already afraid. You lessen the fear, you bring it back. You lessen again. Maybe I misunderstood you. Tell me again. It's yeah, So it's just, it's a, pl- it's a game you It's know? amazing it's to me camp. to
0: hear that you That n- none of the show That you just sit down and start talking That you remember that many details About every oh, yeah, single I do. I do. Case, because it really does When you're telling the story again It really does look like
1: You're living it again That's true, I do I'll tell you why I do Because it, this doesn't happen in six hours <clears throat> you live with a murder case for two years. It's one or two years before you ever get in front of a jury. Motions to suppress, motions for this, motions for that. Defense arguments. This, this, this procedural mistake was made. What do we do about this? And on and on and on. You babysit the families. You talk to everybody all the time, the moms and the dads and the husbands and the wives. And, you know... You keep everybody on an even keel, and you try to keep this all together. So you relive this story for all that time. It is very, very intense. And when that happens, you don't forget. I am blessed, in a way, with a good memory. I remember everything. Okay? That served me well in my line of work. Uh, my kids never liked it much because I remembered all the things that they said and, and the things they didn't do.
0: And then, Tell me the story again about yeah, what yeah, happened at school. Bring up <laughs> and, <you> know,
1: <laughs> my daughter one time, she's like 10 years old. She said, that's not fair. I said, what's not fair? You remember everything. Well, I'll have to write that down. I'm so sorry. You know, yeah, but it's, uh, it's funny. You know, it's a, but so that's what you do. And, and yeah, you do remember and you do relive it. Because you didn't want to at the time, maybe, I guess. I mean, my wife, when this initially started, this show, I wasn't interested. They came to me, somebody came to me and wanted me to do this. Not they, but a guy who was a guy who had the concept. Mm -hmm. He's a producer. I ignored him. I wasn't interested. My wife says, you need to call that guy. I said, no. No, you need to call him. I'm not going to do that. Why would I do that? That went on for a couple days. Finally she said, because I think it would be good for you. I think it would be good for you, and I think you should call him. All right. I'll call him. So I called the guy, and he wanted to put me on film. Okay. I've never done that before, but sure, why not? You know, so I went to Denver. He had obtained a warehouse in in the projects in a bad part of town, (laughs) but he had gotten used to the place and he thought it was visually interesting and all all that sort of thing. And he had a camera guy there, a sound guy. And so, okay, he's ready to film, but he's nervous. He doesn't know me. I don't know him at all. He remembers me from seeing me on the news and, you know, and seeing me with Diane Sawyer once on a deal, and I was on Turning Point one time on a murder case, and he never forgot that. So that's he, you know. But he didn't really know me, so he's nervous because, of course, this is his money and his time and his whatever. And he says, uh, "Well, I want you to think of the cameras, your friend, and he drones on and on." And finally, I said, "Patrick, what? Turn that on and ask me what you want to ask me." And so he said, oh, well, and he didn't say anything for about two minutes. And finally he said, tell me about murder. Okay. So I did for an hour and a half, whatever came into my head. And an hour and a half, I reached the stopping place, and I stood up, and I said, is that what you had in mind? And he's standing with his mouth open, and the camera guy's got his mouth open, and I thought, this didn't go well. <laughs> said, Let me ask you again, is that what you had in mind? You know, And he says, oh, yeah. Which Patrick, by the way? Patrick Bryant. Oh,
0: okay. Because I feel like I know there's a production company in Denver, and I'm wondering if I know this company that that, that brought you He worked
1: at the time for High Noon. High Noon, yeah. It was High Noon. Mm -hmm. He worked for them, but he didn't do this for them. He did it on his own. Uh Uh-huh. He uh, had left the company, and he started this thing on his own because he felt that he had the necessary skill Mm -hmm. to, to do it, and he was right. He did. Right. So then we put together the pitch reel, the six-minute thing, and uh, he spent a very long time uh, you know, trying to sell it. To you. It's the old story. You've got to get in front of the right face. And he did. And here we are. Five seasons later. Almost six. Six starting soon. <laughs> yes, you th- do you think you're going to get through all the 356? Who knows? <laughs> I mean, we'll see what happens. You know, uh, it's been good for me. I mean, it does. I I do feel better. I do. Um, and that's worth it to me. What is weird to me? Still weird to me. People recognize me. People want my autograph. You know, and it's like, what? You talking to me? I just don't think that's real. Somehow, I don't see myself as a Famous person, I suppose. I guess. You know, I just don't. Six seasons is more than most people get in the television business. I
0: mean, that's pretty... I understand.
1: I know. I know all that. You know, and and, and even Kathy, by the way, looks at me, she said, is this really happening? Yes, it is really happening. You know why? It's because people are connecting with
0: you. They're connecting with you because it's, you know, like I said before, it's a perspective on where... you know, but people are desensitized to cinematic violence. I don't think most people are desensitized to actual violence. No,
1: they're not. No, they're and, not.
0: And and to see, you know, especially, I notice you get particularly emotional when it when there are kids involved. Yes, which I, you know, I, for the obvious reasons. Number one, because they're kids and they're innocent, and no one they don't deserve that. And number two, you have kids. Of course. And so, were you? Was there ever? Were you ever on the? Was it ever a difficult decision to say like? how can I stay in this business when I know I have kids and I know, you know, like that does create an emotional,
1: it, it, it drove me to the end to where I knew it was time to go. I had reached my emotional limit and I had a guy who was 74 years old who sexually assaulted his five-year-old grandson. Jesus. And I had run out of detectives. We were just having a bad day. And uh, sex crimes was one of the units I ran in major crimes. And uh, they said, hey, Lieutenant, we we're, don't we're have anybody talk to this guy. All right, I'll take that guy. You know, you talk to this other guy. And he said to me, I said, why did you do that to that little boy? And he said he came on to me. Oh, my god. And I don't remember anything after that until I heard one of my guys saying, Lieutenant, Lieutenant, and I was strangling this guy. Jesus. I was. He was turning blue, and I was going to kill him. And I didn't know what I was, I was was like, I'd lost it, right? And I dropped him, and I said, get him medical, and I got to go. And I went to my office and typed up a memorandum that said I return. Right there. Yep. Went home and told the wife, it's your turn. You know, was, we had another incident where I had come home. I called her as I had, you know, I had a, a shooting involving an automatic weapon. And uh, it took me five days to figure out who did that. And I said, I'm going to go eat this jerk with the machine gun and I'll be licked. As I had done hundreds of times. I told her that on the phone. She said, okay. So I come bee bobbing in the door, it's one o'clock in the morning, you know, and all lights are on. Uh oh. That's not normal, you know. She never is up that late. And I look around the corner, she's sitting in the living room, and she's got a drink in front of her, which is very rare, and she's crying. And I thought her mother died. Her mother hadn't been well. And I said, what is the matter with you? And when she's really pissed at me, she calls me up by my last name. And she points her at me and says, Kenda, I can't wait for you to come home anymore. Yes, ma'am. Her turn. Now, it took me two years to lose the venom, all right, two years. And I was sitting in my kitchen one morning, drinking a cup of coffee, and my wife says, hi. And I looked at her and I said, in case you haven't been paying attention, dear, I've been sitting here for two hours. (laughs) She said, I know, but you're the guy I married again
0: oh my gosh and that took two years
1: I thought that was very nice that's wonderful you know but yeah two years two years oh yeah why would she would go to doctors parties and hospital functions you know because the obligatory political sure. show up you know and should bring me well everybody knew who I was because I was on the news all the time and uh, you know and uh so I'd walk into a party, and the temperature would drop thirty degrees, and everybody all every toilet in the building would flush because they're all flushing their dope down the <laughs> toilet. You know? And everybody's looking at their watch, boys. Eight o'clock. I gotta go. You know. And pretty soon, there's like uh, crickets in this party. You know. And she'd look at me and say, "You're a real buzzkill." Yeah, so I guess, I guess I am. You know. I'm sorry. You know. So. And there was another occasion where we wanted to go dancing. She wanted to go dancing. And I was like, you know, I can't walk and chew gum at the same time, let alone dance. But she said, I want to learn a country dance, and you're going to go with me. She's ripped, you know. And I said, what? I just walked in. I mean, please, you know, don't get mad. You know, what's <laughs> <clears throat> Well, this other nurse and I and uh, <clears throat> her husband and uh, do I know her? No. But we're all going to go to this bar. And they have a deal, if you'd order two drinks, uh, then they teach you this dance for free. <coughs> Western dancing. No, right. Fine, so we go. We're not there two minutes, and this girl who I meet, who's my wife's age at the time, 38, 39, hello, how are you? And who's this? My husband. It's like 22, <laughs> hello, <laughs> hmm, you know. So they, they, he wanders off, Kathy goes to get a drink or something. This woman immediately says to me, I need to talk to you about my daughter. Mm, what about your daughter? Well, I've been having a lot of trouble with her, and uh, it's, uh, how old's your daughter? 17. What kind of trouble? Well, she's using drugs and she has bad friends and uh, and this started when? I mean, she's 17 years old. I mean, is this something that you have been dealing with? or No, up to three years ago, uh, she was fine. She had good grades at this, had that. It's got to mm-hmm. be the boyfriend. What changed in your life three years ago? <laughs> what? What changed in your life three years ago? Well, I met my my new husband <laughs> really he goes back to the table and I said your wife tells me you're having trouble with your stepdaughter you wouldn't know about that would you and he won't look at me his eyes drop I said well no I don't uh, okay so I grabbed Kathy by the Thigh all the way to the bone. And I said, uh, (laughs) Kathy and I have to go. (laughs) She's like gasping for air, cutting off the blood supply in her left leg. I said, I want you to bring your daughter to my office. And I I put a business card, I slid it across the table. So bring your daughter and you to my office tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Don't be late, and don't make me come and find you. We left. The next day, I arrested the new husband for multiple counts of sexual assault on a child. And uh, Kathy said that girl didn't want to talk to her anymore. So I said, so what do you want to do next week? You want to learn how to tango? (laughs) That didn't go over so well.
0: that didn't go over so well. <laughs> Every time, Joe, can we please just go to a dance? Sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry there's so many pieces of shit in the world. Yeah,
1: well, now she can do that and not worry about it because I don't have guns or patches anymore. <laughs> so, you know, I, I gave it the office. You know? <laughs> I, have a I, few, know. I have a few questions
0: left for you, and one of them is, because I think it's... I think I think there's something to extrapolate from problem solving that is applicable to most things. I think most things that people are trying to do, and it's that that point where you you've in your case you've looked at a case a hundred times. You've looked at everything you have, and I'm, you know it's all right there, and there's nothing new, and you're trying to bang through the wall of what are we missing? What are yeah, we gosh. missing? So is it? What is it? With your problem solving that gets you through that's besides the random because a lot of times in the show it's an and then a game changing break so it could be a
1: break it it can be it can be it is is it
0: asking better questions because obviously you have to ask good questions
1: right so what's always been helpful to me is to is to start over just start over put it together put it in a pile put it over here and think back to that crime scene and don't think about any of this crap that's in this pile. Start over in your head. Walk yourself through that crime scene. Crime scenes will speak to you if you listen. They whisper, so you have to listen carefully, but they will tell you what happened in here. What happened in here? What did somebody do in this place to make this happen? What did they do before, during, and after? you can learn a lot of things something was not seen or thought about in that crime scene it's going to lead you in a different direction than what's in that pile of paper so it's always been helpful for me is to start over start again approach this as something new not old not the old frustration you've been staring at but start, start again just try to get that out of your head that's not easy to do but yeah. try to get that out of your head and try to start again. You know, what, what, what happened? Why is this a problem? Why was this a problem? And what did we see? And what did we learn? And you know, and, that. and just go back through it again. And you usually will find the mistake you made. Or you'll usually remember something you had forgotten about. Or whatever. You know. When I say crime scenes, I'll speak to you. Just one, one example. What's the weapon? Was it here? Is it still here? If it was here, if it's the knife out of the knife block in the kitchen, or it's the crystal ashtray off the coffee table, or it's the ball bat from the baseball collection, it's in this room. It's a weapon of opportunity. Whatever happened, happened here, not somewhere else. Something went very wrong and made this person arm themselves, attack the victim, and run away, leaving the weapon behind. Now, what if it's gunshot victim? There's no gun in here. The gun could have been found in there, that's true, and then removed for potential further use. But the thing you've got to think about is it was brought here there's a motive to this whatever happened didn't happen here it happened before here and it made somebody come here with with the means to kill this person so those kinds of things can lead you in a direction in a case may not be right may not be you have to be smart enough to realize that, all right? You have to be smart enough to not believe your instincts. Believe the facts. Instincts don't help you. They don't. People say that all the time, but it's bullshit. Why? What are the facts? <coughs> what are oh. the facts? What are the facts? Don't tell me about your gut. I don't care about your gut. <laughs> I'm not an internist. You know? <laughs> so I don't care about your gut. They do. You know, you pay those guys. They they look at your gut. I don't. You know? yeah. What what do we know? What do we know or what can we reasonably conclude from what we know? Because you're going to present this to 12 people who don't know anything about it. How can you convince them if you can't convince yourself?
0: There are so many details in the show that just you describing... You know, when you go to a scene and there's blood, it's the smell of copper, and then mm-hmm. there it it, is too. And then the sort of like you described earlier. You started putting Vicks in your nose when you go to these yeah. these crime scenes. I mean, what is what? Is, what was the most unexpected part about all of it? Now that you you know, from when you started to now, what was what was something that you just wouldn't know unless you were in it.
1: Oh, I don't know how to answer that, really. But I guess what people don't really understand is that probably I I would say that it's reasonable to say that they don't understand that humans have no limits. There are no limits to what someone will do. None. Animals kill for need. Humans kill for pleasure. Totally different thing. But there is absolutely no limit to the depravity, the violence, the things that people will do to other people that occur nowhere else in the natural world. Nowhere else. So knowing that,
0: how do you find joy? How were you able to find joy? I know it's not going to a dance, (laughs)
1: <laughs> no, that didn't work out so well. <laughs> so I was you- always, i was careful not to associate with other policemen. I had a professional life and a personal life, and I didn't let the two mix. My friends all did something else. Uh, a guy who was a, was a warrant officer in the Army, he was an IT guy in the Army. Uh, another guy was an airline pilot. That guy was a cabinet maker. I mean, all kinds of different people were my friends. So we'd have parties. We'd go to their parties. would talk about what it's like to be an airline pilot or what it's like to do that or whatever. So it gives you a sense of the fact that the world is really okay, yeah, and that there is only a small percentage of the world with which you spend one hundred percent of your time. <laughs> right. And if you're not careful, you know, then you begin to believe the world's like that. Well, it isn't like that. So that was my defense against the kinds of people i spent time with and it was you know, i was able to find a lot of enjoyment out of that and a lot of just let everything go away you know and let's talk about what you do or let's let's talk about this event or let's talk about whatever um the kids with their sports activities uh, uh um my kids got involved in every sport there was now to man and we uh, and Kathy and I would uh, spend a lot of time with that and with them. And, you know, it was great fun. But I was—I never had pictures of anybody in my office. I didn't have pictures of my kids. I didn't have pictures of my wife. Nothing. No anything about me. They knew I was the boss. That's all they knew. I never wore a wedding ring when I worked. I was just this guy, all right? So my wife had never been in a police station in the main headquarters building. Never been in there. My office on the second floor... Of the, of the police operations center. She'd never been in the building. But my daughter goes to college. She goes, to, goes away to CU Boulder. It's about a two-and-a-half-hour drive from Colorado Springs. So she goes to the main campus, University of Colorado. And she gets in a snet with a, with a roommate. You know, it's a cat fight between two 18-year-old girls. And the housing people think this is the worst thing since the Second World War. <laughs> <laughs> they call my wife, "Oh my God, you know there's been this problem, you know, okay, all right, all right all right, so she was going she you couldn't get me on the phone, just not you couldn't do it so she she came down to the building to tell me she was going to drive to Boulder, and that i she wouldn't be there when I got home, and that's where she would be, you know because my son is already away at school, so there's nobody there but her, so she walks up to the front desk. And they have people that work there. They're not cops, but they're women that work for the police department, they're police service representatives. You know, mm-hmm. They greet the public and yes, can we help you? And she says, well, I need to speak to Lieutenant Kendra. She said, do you have an appointment? <laughs> she said, I don't need an appointment. I'm his wife. The word travels like wildfire. That not only is Kenda married, but it's in the building. <laughs> now it's this. Everybody's looking around the corner. It's like, is it a girl? What do we think? You know what I mean? And it, it was—it was so weird. So by the time I get downstairs, she's like backed in a corner. I said, "What's the matter?" She. Said, Everybody's looking at me. I said, "They want to see if you're a girl." Come on, let's go upstairs. So. It was so funny. I mean, she was really like, ooh. Yes, that was creepy, you know. because so, it was kind of creepy, but you know, it was a new no experience for them. You know, so you know, I've, I brought my
0: fiance Lydia because we watched the show together, and we started watching the show together because um, she said uh, it came on once. She said, "Oh, you know, I used to watch the show with my dad all the time." She she and I lost our dads within a month of each other. We weren't dating yet. We weren't even That's dating right. yet. Uh, But we lost our dads within a month of each other. Uh, Lydia's dad had a long battle with cancer. My dad dropped out of a heart attack. But it was within a month of each other. And it was oddly, a lot of the subject of our first date was talking about our dad's dying. And then ultimately, you know, we had this month. And so, you know, for her, watching your show was very much a bonding experience with her dad. Because you're dad was uh was yeah,
1: he a, he was a private investigator and and worked for the chief of police in san francisco and one of his partners actually was the guy who did like all the milk killings made the do you
0: want to say that on the microphone so I people know, can hear you really? yeah. just say on the microphone <laughs> so people can hear you because otherwise you're just going to be in the background and you're like what did she say what did she say yeah. Not, yeah your dad was a private uh, investigator
1: yeah my dad <coughs> was a police officer and private investigator in san francisco in the 70s and one of his partners i guess right when he filed to get his partners changed, it was the guy during all the Harvey Milk killings. All right, and yeah. I, I just remember my dad very much spoke uh, very similarly to the way you did, and I just remember him being like, yeah, that guy was a bastard, everybody hated him. And he was just very very blunt, and
0: I, I very much appreciate your incredible dingerism. <laughs> <clears throat> so it's been kind of a bonding experience, you know, mm-hmm. like it's, it was a bonding experience for Lydia's family, and then now it's kind of our... It's kind of our bonding experience, and you know, it's it's a strange thing to go to sleep to every night. We all we almost always watch your show, right? Like I said, right in a minute. And there are sometimes I'm like, why are we watching horrible murders? You know, but it is it is it really? I mean, you really do you really do give it all a very human,
1: and I feel like a very respectful perspective. That's certainly what I want to do. Uh, it's very difficult to, as you know, you're in the business of television, to tell a very complicated story in 43 minutes and 50 seconds. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult. If you were to present a murder case as it happened, the, the show would last for 16 weeks and nobody would watch it because it would make you crazy. You know, you get on this rabbit Warren. it's the wrong one. This rabbit worm, no. This guy, Well, he was in jail when this happened. Oh, he's not the guy. He's in jail. And on and on. Those are the things that really happened. So what I do is I select the highlights of the case and I talk about those. I don't talk about everything because there's no time to talk about everything. It would be very distracting to someone. Sure. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, my office was, was kind of like my car. It was the Tower of Babel, you know. <laughs> I had five microphones in my car on the sun visor connected to five different phones or radios. And I'd be carrying on conversations with all five of them all the time. The office was like, the phones are ringing There's eight guys standing in line. I what about this guy? Yeah, do this. You know, it was just that way constantly. So now that I retired, I have a car that has a this whoop-de-doo jukebox in it, you know, that's supposed to do everything in the world, and it's, you know, iPod, iPad, whatever, you know, it's, it's do this, do that, oh, man, push this button, the world comes to you alive and in color, and I've never, so I sold the car, it was time to get another one, and I sold the car, and I said, how's that radio work? I said, I don't know. So I assume it works, it's brand new, it's never been turned on. <laughs> Because <laughs> I want silence. Sil- <laughs> of course, you want silence. I don't want to hear her, you know, sixteen-channel police radios, and I don't want to hear that. I just don't. I just want it to be quiet. I get my wife's car. The first thing I do is turn the radio off because she always has it on. Dink. Yeah, it's constant noise. I would imagine even just it's just sure it's just noise. To me,
0: it's just noise. Even he, you know, even little details like uh, I would al- the second the phone would ring in the middle of the night was never good news, and you. You said you would always try to grab it as quickly as it started to ring so it wouldn't wake the family. I mean, those are just things that people don't really think about. No,
1: my wife didn't work there. My kids didn't work there either. You know, the phone rings in the middle of the night. It wakes people up. So I'd try to get it before it half ring or something like that, you know. Uh, The the strangest thing I ever had is really strange. I had a police car that I would take home. And I always parked it outside, of course, because now I'm going to park the police car inside. My car <laughs> goes inside. You know? So anyway, the car's outside. And I get, it was 1.30 in the morning. And I get up, and the phone's ringing. You know, the usual. Those people are wide awake. They're working. You know? Right. So, could, you, could you give me a second here? What? Where, where is it? Yeah. I went out to the car, and I thought, what time is it? Because it was a full moon. It was so bright It was like daylight, and now it's 1.30 in the morning, okay, you know it was so bright I could see the key lock in the door in the moonlight, so I, you know well, at night when I'd come home, I'd turn everything I'd just turn the car off, and everything would shut off. you know the commercial radio, all the place radios. I was listening to rock and roll music. I like rock and roll because so i I had that on the, on the radio all the time. So, when I started the car, everything lights up, you know, everything comes on, you know, including the commercial radio. And you know that just beat before they play a song, you know, the, the beats on the radio? Yeah. And they started playing Bad Moon Rising, <laughs> CCR. <laughs> and I thought, I didn't know Fogarty was a prophet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm looking up at that moon through the windshield, and they were calling me out here, one X ray one, one X ray one. That was my radio side, you know. I'm busy right now. I'm not do this song. You know, <laughs> it's, don't uh, go it's, out tonight. It might, it might take your life. You yeah, have well, no kidding. That's why I'm doing here. You know man. what I mean? I thought that was busy. on your way to see something really horrible. Probably. Oh yeah, of course.
0: Well, I hope that you're able to. I hope you're able to sleep some now. I mean,
1: has the That's show enough. helped with any of the it five has. nightmares? No, but it's it's helped me sleep better.
0: When they happen. In your dream, are you conscious? Oh, it's
1: this again, or do you? Well, is it still no, a- yeah, you are. And you know what's really the thing about PTSD? Unless you've experienced that, you don't understand this part of it. But the best description I can offer is: during the day, you're not asleep, you're not in bed. PTSD is having a nightmare while you're awake. It's very bizarre. Something will trigger it. I was watching the news one night, and there was it was a very nice little story about a a, it was about a policewoman in Rochester, New York, who had a program after school teaching disadvantaged kids how to read, and she was teaching kids how to read. Great thing, right? 20 years before I watched that news broadcast, I had a violent, violent incident involving a little kid. And when that news thing came on and she said, this is one of my students, it was that kid. It wasn't that kid, but it was that kid. And it just hit me. It hit me like a bolt of lightning. And I got out of the chair and I walked out. I'm Kathy. What's I got to go outside? I have to go outside. And she's learned to just leave me alone. At that moment, but it's that's what I mean. I mean, it's just it's just something triggers it. A smell, a, a noise, something, and you're right back in the moment for just a few seconds, not for an extended period of time, just a few seconds. And it's so weird, and you stop and you go, "Wait a minute! You know, it's okay. All right, no, it's not happening now. It's it happened. It's not happening now. You know, you know, it's so. it really is.
0: Well, because yeah. I, I, you
1: know, your your emotional,
0: the emotional part of your brain has no, probably no concept of time, so it's just no, there.
1: It's just there. Yeah, know. Just yeah, waiting to get no, stepped on, and like and a, abs- yeah, of like course, like, like you know, somebody, boop, hey. Let me push that button. See what happens. You know? And that's what it does sometimes. But you know, it's it's the it's the price you pay for the work. Was it worth it? Yeah it was. Yeah, it was. But it is the price you pay for the work. It's that level of intensity that just you know doing what I did for twenty three years and six months equates to doing what anybody else does for about a hundred and ten years. I know. Combat is incredible violence very quickly. 15 months, 12 months, 15 months. Combat tour, you're back, right? Police work is a slow dance of violence. Not every day, but a slow dance. Not 12 months, 15 months. 23 years and 6 months. It just never really stops. And you're expecting it to, wanting it to, wishing it would, knowing it won't, until you finally say, as I did, enough. I can't do this. I'm done. And I was. Leave it at the top of your game. I was there Friday, I wasn't there Monday. But
0: then you have to spend the next however many years sifting through all of all of that. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. But I put people in a cage and need to be there. Most of them are still there. Some of them died in that cage. So what? So at the end of the day, you did your job. I did my job. That's what I was proud of. Now, I I was I was fair with people. Always fair. I never treated anybody badly. I never did. But I could be ruthless when I needed to be. And if I thought you knew something I needed to know and you wouldn't tell me, I would be ruthless. And I would tell you that. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to take your kids away from you. I'm going to do anything I can to make your life suck until you decide to tell me what you know. You often get inmates who will send you a letter. It's called a kite in the prison world. You send a kite, you fly it over the wall.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. They know that, of course, they go to prison. They realize they don't like prison. (laughs) Understandable. <laughs> 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 They're there for eight months or so, and they said, "Jesus, you know, I got to get out of here." So they send up. We won't answer that. Sorry. That's okay. And turn it off. To <laughs> That's okay. Stop. I don't
0: know. The important thing is it's not the station calling. It's not them.
1: So uh, they send you this letter, and they say, "You know, I know about a murder because they know it'll get your attention." Yeah. Now, sometimes they actually do, but most of the time they don't. They, just, they think they can hustle their way into something, get some kind of a deal from you, you know. So I'd go to the prison, and I'm phoning up a reason that would be in a warden's office or whatever, you know. So the inmates don't know what they're doing because the snitch jacket is not a good thing, you know. If you're an informant, you're going to die, you know, in, in a prison. So you get them in there from the pretext, and you go talk to them, and they're always, you know, usually, if they particularly if they don't know anything, they're arrogant and, meh, meh, you're here, yes, I'm here. So what's the deal? Well, I have certain things I have to, oh, of course, you have a list of demands. Yes. Well, why don't you write them down? Because I don't want to miss anything. So here, here, write it down on this legal pad. Write it down right there. Okay. Well, I want to get out of prison today. Well, of course you do. I need money. Well, not a problem. You know, I want to be the district attorney. I want to have a secretary with big tits. Yeah, of course. We can do all that. Yeah. So we get down to through all this. All right, fine. Okay. Are you sure? Are you done? Well, yeah. Are you absolutely sure that there's nothing else? No. So it's my turn. Well, uh, yeah. Okay. Let me tell you something, convict. You have 60 seconds to tell me something I don't know. And if you can't tell me something I don't know in the next 60 seconds... I'm gonna to go to that microphone over there and I'm gonna tell the yard that you're into talking to me.
0: Oh shit.
1: <laughs> they don't kill me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. By the way, you're down to forty five seconds. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> you still have demands. You know. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I to play this game? I'm good at this game. All right. They're just trying to get something. Sure. Yeah. You know, they want to tell you something they heard in the yard. <laughs> Good as that. Nothing. Hearsay? Not admissible. Tell me you're a participant. Tell me you know the participant. That's different. You know, but tell me you heard this and heard that. I don't care what you heard. But they think that's, the, that's their ticket, you know, that they heard this. Somebody said something, you know, and they overheard it. Oh, please. <laughs> you know, get out of here.
0: I mean, it, it's it's fun having you on the podcast because you talk exact... I mean, like, you, you, I just feel like you are you in any scenario, whether you're on a podcast. I'm thrilled to know that there's ten episodes of a detective podcast with there you. There is. <laughs> we just did that. I did them all in five and a half hours. Jesus. Just, you know. <laughs> so people should listen to that. They should watch Homicide Hunter on Investigation Discovery. Um... Is it Tuesday night? Is it Tuesday
1: nights at mm, Tuesday night at nine? Tuesday nights at nine. Thank you, Deb. It goes back to ten o'clock on January fifth. Okay. It has been at nine o'clock, Eastern. And January the fifth, it goes to ten o'clock. Tonight was new. The next two weeks are repeats because of the holidays. Everybody's off, you know. And uh, then the, all and the new ones begin again January fifth. But it'll be at ten o 'clock and not at nine o'clock Eastern. Okay. so well, I have to thank you for doing the show of
0: course well it's i mean i don't know if it 's an of course i mean it's a pretty fucked up thing to have to live through again but i but i but I hope it helps you. I really hope it helps you, and also you know I have to thank you and I hope people thank you for putting. You know, you say in the beginning, like, you know, these. ultimately you say, and you've said it out here, too, you know, you're speaking up for the victims. And you sacrificed a substantial amount of your life and a substantial amount of your
1: emotional well-being for other people. I, I did. But I, I understand something. I wasn't drafted. I volunteered. Okay. I know. It's a big difference. Yeah. It's a big difference. Didn't mean you uh, had to do it for 23 and a half years. It did to me. I did it for me. I, I've never cared what anyone else thinks of me. I only care what I think of me. I only care what I think of me. If I get up in the morning, I look in the mirror and I like that guy I see, we're good. And doing your job helped you do that? Yes, and you can hate me or you can do it or you can think whatever you want about me. I, I could care less. I really could care less. It's what I think of me, that's what matters and that's why I did this I did this for me you don't need to thank me people say thank you for your service you don't need to thank me you paid me you paid your taxes they paid me every two weeks it all worked out in the end you know what I mean? yeah not necessarily thank me because I didn't do, I wasn't forced into this deal I wasn't I selected it because I thought it was meaningful and I wanted to be I wanted to do something meaningful and I think this was To me it was.
0: Well thank you for letting us take as much of the journey as we can possibly take through a television show. We will be watching we will be watching every week and when that you know, like it's the it's the today, you know, Lydia
1: Texas. There's a new Ken on tonight. There's a new Ken on tonight. Yes, and I missed it too. So, so. Oh well. Now <laughs> yeah, I tell you that was a weird experience for me about the TV show. The first time I saw myself on television, right. it's like <laughs> it was startling. It's like, geez. Uh, and my wife said, "That's you." Yes, it is. Uh, yes, it is. You know, it was very
0: weird. Seeing a bunch of stuff. It still is. Of course, it's weird. It's a very strange thing, you know. It it's is, a very to me, strange thing. To to still, me. I've been doing it for twenty years, and it's still strange. It's still, yeah. it still feels weird to see. Like, what am I doing up there? That's weird. Yeah. I sound like that. Like, it's
1: a, <laughs> I know that's the other thing. Everybody <laughs> talks about my voice, and to me, it's just my voice. You know, it, but it sounds different when I hear it. Want to hear it over a microphone? Of course it does. Then, it, then I hear it. Twice. Yeah, it, so it echoes off your head, your own it's Whatever, skull. Yeah, Whatever. knows? And- you know. Of course. And you listen to it on TV. Says that? Do I sound like that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I know.
0: That's no. weird. Homicide Hunter Investigation Discovery Lieutenant Joe Kenda, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Well, actually, you should tell everyone to enjoy a burrito. This is how we end the
1: podcast. It's a joyful okay. message. It's a in, joyful message. Enjoy your burrito. Enjoy your burrito. Yes! Please, on, on my behalf and in my honor, enjoy your burrito.
0: <laughs> Done. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually, you know, this is actually very ceremonious. This is my last podcast of the year. Then I go on vacation. Oh, we ne- I never that's take vacations. Awesome. But I'm actually getting uh, good for you. you. Yeah. Take I don't. I work oh, I took vacations. Well congratulations on yeah. engagement. Thank yeah. you.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So we're gonna do it here in LA. We're
0: Yeah, we didn't wanna be those people who expect everyone to make a destination wedding where they're like, you know.
1: And it's not even. It's but only it's
0: three, three hours really outside of LA, too. Yeah. So it's not really destination. It's, it's not, but, but it's, it's still kind of a pain in the ass. Like we wanted yeah. the wedding to be. No, it easy is. For you want yeah, is yeah. Yeah. We wanted people to have fun. We wanted to have fun. We wanted people to be able to. Weddings go. are
1: supposed to be fun. They're not supposed to be formal. People have a great time at weddings. If, right. they, if it's like that, people enjoy the wedding. They do. Everybody has a good time. Right. Yeah. Right. If you make the other thing, it's like, ah, where do I if, put yeah, it? What do I do? Can I cross my legs? What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just—it's human nature. I mean, you know, you get make it too formal. So. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: make it too formal, or you know, we're gonna do quick ceremony. Yeah, Get to the party part, you know, just, just try to have it be oh, fun. Oh, yeah. yeah. Not put too many demands. To I told my wife,
1: day. I said, we have to get married again, because all the stuff we, we got for our wedding is broken.
0: You need new stuff. We need, yeah. <laughs> we need you more stuff. stuff yeah. You need new know? mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. There's been this, a lot of technological advancements since you got no married. You so
1: this year will be 48 years. Oh, my gosh. Uh, that's amazing. Congratulations. <laughs> Seems like it's been about six weeks. <laughs> well, Kathy, is, Kathy has a, is Irish blonde haired blue eyed has a temper like a chancel I don't understand her but I'm working on that <laughs>
0: <laughs> you'll figure it out
1: sooner or later sooner or later I just have to avoid the narrow blue eyes those are not good oh,
0: <laughs> oh well then actually this, would be, this is a really good opportunity you've been they married 48 years I'm Irish
1: years. natural blonde dyed red but I got green eyes there you go <laughs> what, the, what, what is She's the key to a successful too. marriage you've been married for 48 years what is you the talk music? to each other because you change and people make a mistake of changing apart instead of together I think sure right. some people I know that we've known for a long time their personalities they do they adjust by age by what you're doing by what you're into whatever and if you don't stay in contact with each other constantly talk about everything you wake up one morning and say who the hell was that and the other person wakes up and says, who's that? I mean, you know, she and I, I was 15 years old when I met her, so I'm 19 now, so it's been <laughs> four,
0: years, four
1: years now. But, you know, its it, we've grown together, she and I, over those years. You know, we've had fights, arguments, you know, all that sort of thing. We have, you know. We always kiss and make up. That's the best part. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, we went through two kids and uh, survived that. Didn't kill our daughter. Thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, we had to stop each other from killing our daughter between the ages of twelve and seventeen. You know, the usual. I'm people. a homicide
0: detective. I know how to get away with and this. Oh yeah, no, yeah. Oh yeah.
1: I came home from work one day. My wife's looking at me. She's just white. I mean, she's an Irish temper. You know, she's just. I've thought this over. I've considered the consequences, and I'm going to kill her. (laughs) No, I'm not. (laughs) Let me me go talk to her. So I go upstairs. She's like 13. I knock on her door. She jerks the door open, looks at me, and I said, what's going on between you and her mom? And she slams the door in my face. No. It's like, okay, now I'm going to kill her.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know where to bury the body. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah but we
1: survived all that. So did okay. she. So, you know, of well, course, uh, now we laugh about it. So does she. But you know, nobody was laughing. Then.
0: That's an excellent piece of advice. Can we leave that in the podcast? It's a good piece of advice to talk. If you want. I would love to. Sure. I think mean, it's an excellent piece of
1: advice. I, it's just what I've observed among people I know who were a long time married and then broke up. And it's like, what happened to them and I I always say Kathy and I both would know well they don't they they pursue different things they have different interests they became different people and forgot to tell each other yeah happens it's nobody's fault it's not some evil thing or anything but it just happens you stay together be together I promise we will always talk You you face it together when there's something going on good or bad you no, know, it's you and her. Nobody else. Uh, my wife and I and my two kids. You don't think about her today.
0: So do does. I kinda think there's a side series for you. <laughs> uh, Kendall relationships. Yeah, yeah, talk. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wedding hunter. <laughs> Ma- marriage hunter. Yes.
1: yes. Put your hand on my badge. Okay, of <laughs> course. <laughs> <laughs> If I were invested in me by the state of Colorado, you're done. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, the host of How I Built This, a podcast that gives you a front row seat to how some of the biggest products were built and the innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists behind them.